Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Lord, I pray you speak this morning. Uh, we welcome you. We're so thankful your presence already with us, Lord. Uh, in Jesus' name, uh, amen. All right, today we're in John chapter 15. I asked you this week, if you're reading along with us uh, through this series, The Gospel of John, to read John 15 and 16. Now, this coming week, we're kind of playing catch up. I wish we could go, uh, I wish we could go about a verse a week with this, but uh, we're trying to get to John chapter 20 by Easter, which is in two weeks. So this coming week, if you're reading along with us, read through chapter 19, and that'll take us through his death on the cross. Now, last week, we looked at how Jesus has now entered the final week of his life on the earth. Uh, John spends nine chapters on the final week of his life. And at this point, Jesus has transitioned out of public ministry and into a private ministry just with his disciples. And in fact, at this point, Judas has also left to begin the process of betraying Jesus. So now it's just Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples. And because of this, because of all the transition that's happening, Jesus begins to emphasize different things in his ministry, puts a huge emphasis uh, on the Holy Spirit uh, and how to lean on the Holy Spirit after he departs. And he begins to, to really emphasize leadership and what kingdom leadership looks like. And last week we talked about how he, he talked about leadership through service with the washing of their feet. Uh, but he is talking to the ones who are establishing and leading the New Testament church. So that's why we're finding these emphases, if that's how you say it, taking place. Now, uh, last week, or, or I'm sorry, uh, today, um, I want to look at chapter 15, and I want to do it from two different angles. Uh, one is through the culture of that day, through, the, through that perspective, and the other is through the lens of application, both then and today. But I want to begin with that cultural perspective, and to do that, uh, we're going to zoom out just a little bit, bit and we're going to remember something that took place in John chapter 8 that almost got Jesus killed. In John chapter 8, if you remember at that point in Jesus' life, um, the, the religious leaders were kind of trying to figure out who this guy was. And actually more important to them is who this guy claimed he was. Uh, Jesus up until this point had alluded to his identity, but at the end of John chapter 8, he makes it as clear as he can. In John 8, 58, he says, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was, uh, I am. And at this, they picked up stones to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. He was referring to Exodus chapter 3 when, God, when Moses asked God, Who should I tell them has sent me to them? And God said, Tell them I am has sent you to them. So in that single moment in John chapter 8, without question, Jesus identifies himself as that I am that great I am, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from way back in the book of Exodus. But what Jesus does, as we've studied to some degree now, is on seven occasions in the Gospel of John, he completes that I am statement. He says, I am the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the door or the gate of the sheep. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And as we begin this morning in John chapter 15, in a conversation held privately with his 11 remaining disciples, Jesus shares with them the seventh and final completion to that I am statement. So we're going to read it together. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. 
He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now what I want to focus on uh, just for a moment this, this, uh, this morning is a word that we find there in verse 1. Just one, one word that that uh, he specifies here in John 15, 1. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Now, this is a word that we would typically just read past here, but it's actually very intentional, and it's actually very necessary to what Jesus is trying to say. Why does he specify that it's true? You may have noticed, actually, a few moments later, he simply says, I am the vine. But right here, he first specifies, makes this distinction, I am the true vine. Now, throughout the Gospel of John, there has been this great emphasis on truth. John said in chapter 1 that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. John referred to Jesus as the true light from heaven. Uh, before Jesus said, I am the bread of life, he first referred to himself as the true bread that comes, uh, uh, came from heaven. And here in John 15, he refers to himself in, in verse 1, not as just the vine, but as the true vine. Now understand, when Jesus said he was a true representation of anything, there is an implication in that. That implication is that previously there was either a false version of that, a false representation, or a partial representation. Now what I mean by that is often there is a representation of something in the Old Testament that wasn't necessarily false, but it was a foreshadowing of Christ. And what he was saying is I am the true fulfillment of that. I am the true uh, realization or representation of that. So if we consider John 6, which I just mentioned earlier, we see an example of this. Uh, beginning in verse 31, uh, the, the, the religious leaders are talking to Jesus and they say, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us always this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus was not saying that I'm the true bread, as in that other bread was false. He was saying I'm the true bread, as in that bread, that manna, was foreshadowing me. It was pointing to me just as the manna came from heaven and it gave life, even if it was only for a moment, Jesus said, I am the true bread from God that has come down from heaven and gives life. The manna was an image of me. I am the true bread. So why does Jesus begin here in John 15 by saying, I am the true vine? 
Was there another vine, so to speak, that was either false or partial, and Jesus is saying, I fulfill it, or I, I replace it, whatever the case may be? And again, this is one of those instances where we in, in 21st century America have to really search this out, but to his audience, they would have made a connection immediately to what Jesus was saying, because throughout the Old, Old Testament, there was an entity that was often referred to as the vine, now, the prophet Isaiah was speaking about this vine. God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah about this vine and saying there is a problem with this vine. Let's look at it together in Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. He says, I will, sing, uh, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up. And he cleared it of stones, and he planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a, a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. I want you to see what's taking place first here. As he says, I dug, I cleared, I planted, I built, and I cut. The image here is I spared no expense. I cut no corners on this vineyard. I worked hard. So we have this vineyard planted by a gardener. And he says, I dug up the ground, I removed all the stones, I planted the best of the best, and I looked for that good fruit. And then if we continue with that verse, Greg, he says, but it yielded only bad fruit. Then he says in verse 3, now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? It's all about the unfruitfulness of this vine. We have this vine that is not producing good fruit. It's not producing life and blessing like it was intended to. And God says to the people of Israel, you be the judge. What more could I have done for this vineyard? I cleared out all the stones. I planted the choicest vines. What more could I have done? And he says, what should I do about it? Now, I'm reminded here of a story, uh, the story of David and Bathsheba, uh, where David has this affair with the wife of one of the leaders of his army, and to cover, it up, uh, to cover up his sin, David has the man killed. And then in, in 2 Samuel 12, God sends Nathan with a message for David, and he says, I want to tell you a story. There was a rich man with all the sheep in the world, and there was a poor man with only one sheep. And the, the rich man needed to eat a sheep. He needed to slaughter it and, and, and have it for supper. And he decided, rather than his abundance of choices, he would take that poor man's sheep, and he would slaughter his instead of his own. David, what do you think I should do about it? And David, having no clue that the story is about himself, becomes angry towards the rich man in the story. And I'm reminded of this story because here we have God speaking to the people of Israel, and he says, I've got this vine, and I have worked so hard on this vine, tirelessly setting it up for success. I've dug up the land, I've cleared the field, I've planted the vines, built a tower, cut out the press, yet it only produces bad fruit. Then he says to the people of Israel, so what should I do in this case? Only in this instance, he doesn't wait for a response. He just tells them what he plans to do in verse 5. He says, I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. So again, we have this vine, and it's not producing any good fruit so God says, what more could I have done? 
And what should I do now? And finally he says, what I'm going to do is take away the hedge and allow it to be destroyed. But what is this vine that God is talking about? He tells us directly in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. The people of Judah, the people of the nation of Israel are the vines. Then he says, and he looked for you to produce justice, but he saw bloodshed. He looked for you to produce righteousness, but he heard cries of distress. The nation of Israel was the vineyard. The people of Israel were the vines. And this is one of the clearest illustrations we have in Scripture, but it's found all over the Bible. In Psalm 80, verse 8, he says, you, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. Hosea, uh, Hosea talks about Israel as the vine. David does. Jeremiah does. It's everywhere, everywhere. And, and the people of Israel... They considered themselves to be the vine of the earth, God's holy vine planted by God himself, meaning that they were supposed to be God's source of life to others and God's source of blessings to the whole earth. And this was God's intention that Israel was supposed to be a nation where its people were a source of blessing to everyone. We find this all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 where God said, uh, to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse whoever curses you and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now these words are messianic and what that means is they're ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But Abraham didn't know this. And the nation of Israel didn't know this in that moment. That was not their understanding. They understood this to be their calling. Their calling was to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. This is who they were meant to be. They were a vine planted by God that gives life and produces abundant fruit. However, by the time of Isaiah, the people of Israel were not producing good fruit among the nations. God said it this way, where I've looked for justice, I find bloodshed. Where I look for righteousness, I find distress. Where I look for good, abundant, life-giving fruit, I only find bad fruit. Now, it's against that backdrop in the words of Isaiah 5 that Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, I am the true vine. Where the nation of Israel as a people had failed to be a source of life and a source of blessing for the whole earth. Jesus was saying, I am the true source of life. I am the true source of blessing. And, and the very fulfillment of Genesis 3, that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Jesus was saying, I am the true fulfillment of that. That all the peoples of the earth are blessed through the nation of Israel but because I came out of the nation of Israel, that's why he is the true vine. And where you, you, you used to have to be grafted into the vine or the vineyard of God by converting to Judaism and obeying the law of Moses, Jesus was saying, now you are grafted into the true vine through faith in me, through faith in Jesus Christ, and through grace alone. Now, that is a cultural snapshot of that single verse where Jesus says, I am the true vine. But what about the context of application? Uh, the, the overarching application of what I just mentioned uh, is what I just mentioned, where you used to have to be grafted as into to, 
to Christ, to God by converting to Judaism. And now Jesus says, you do it through me, through grace alone. But there is a daily application to this teaching. There are many daily applications, but one I want to look at specifically this morning that we find in John 15, 4. Jesus is speaking. He says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Four times in this one verse and 12 times in this one chapter, Jesus uses the Greek word menio, which is translated in most of your Bibles, remain or abide. Now, in Scripture... Uh, they didn't have bold letters or italicized letters or, or highlighted or, or underlined. So what they would do instead is they would use repetition. If they said something twice, like Jesus began a statement by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, it was a way of calling attention to that. If they repeated something three times, which was rare, it was really calling attention to it. Like when the Bible says that there are creatures around the throne of God, God crying, holy, holy, holy. It is calling attention to the holiness of God. Now, what we have in this chapter, uh, we don't have the word abide 12 times successively, but we have it so many times in a short span that we know it's intentional and we know it is drawing attention to this idea of abiding. Now that literally means to remain somewhere and never depart. It means to always be present. And that is the key. Uh, all of us have been with someone trying to have a conversation and they're on their phone. And technically, they're there, but you know they are not present with you. Um, when I was a kid and I was uh, instructed to be the chaperone on my older brother's dates when his girlfriend would come to the house, make sure no hanky-panky's going on, uh, I would sit in that room with them and I was always there and he was never present with me. And when the Bible instructs us to abide in Christ, to abide in the Holy Spirit, the reality is if you're in Christ, Jesus is always with you and the Holy Spirit is always with you. Are you present with him? That, that is the crux of this entire teaching is are you present with God? Because he's present with you. He's in this room at this very moment. Are you present with him? Now, now the timing of this entire command, it's kind of fascinating because if you look at John chapter 7, Jesus says to the disciples, you'll look for me and you won't find me because I'm going somewhere that you cannot come. In John chapter 13, so two chapters before this, he repeats this. He says, I'm just going to be with you a little while longer and then you'll look for me. But I'm telling you where I'm going, you cannot come. In one chapter later, in John chapter 16, uh, the Bible says, Jesus told them, I am going away. In a little while, you will see me no more. And what he's doing is he is prepping them for this, uh, mentally for this time where he was going away from them. Yet sandwiched in the middle of this is this command. Even though I am going away, I am instructing you to never depart from me. 
Apart from the Holy Spirit, that makes no sense that God would say, that Jesus would say, I'm leaving, you can't come with me, but always stay with me. You can't come with me, but always stay with me. And what Jesus said was, if you do this, you will bear much fruit. We find that in John 15, 5. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Sometimes we scramble this verse and we read it as if it says, if you bear much fruit, you will remain in me. It's important to recognize here that the, the emphasis is on the abiding. The fruit is important. Jesus actually said that, that the fruit that you bear shows that you are my disciples. But, but our primary focus is not the fruit. Our primary focus is to abide and to remain present with Christ and with the Holy Spirit at all times. And the fruit is a byproduct of that. That's why 12 times Jesus says, abide, abide, abide. Otherwise, he would have said, bear fruit, bear fruit, bear fruit. But no, that is a byproduct of abiding and remaining with Christ. Because the truth of the matter is the second a vine or a branch disconnects from the vine... It stops producing, and it begins dying. Um, Davey is in the back, so he won't hear this, so I'll share it with you. He planted uh, uh, some green beans in our garden last year, and I was weeding the garden, and I had no idea they were his green beans, so I just yanked them right up. And then I realized they were his, so I tried putting them right back. And then he came in the house the next day, and he said, my green beans died. I said, oh, bud, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear that. The reality is the moment you disconnect, you stop producing, and you begin dying. Nobody tell him that, or I will kick you out of this church. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I want to close with this, Renee, if you'll come. In John chapter 15 again, I want to read verses 9 through 14 as we close. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Just before we move on, I want to point something out. He didn't say, As your mama loves you, or as a mother hen loves the, the baby chicks, because there is no greater expression that he can make of, of his love for others than to say, The way that God the Father loves me is how I love my, my followers, is how I love my disciples. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's, for one's friends. And then he says this, you are my friends if you do what I command. And I just want to point something out here because uh, we often define kind of the success of our Christian walk of how well we avoid the bad things. And we make the purpose of our Christian walk to avoid everything that God forbids. But what Jesus focuses on this moment, uh, in this moment, is, is not a, avoiding what he forgives, uh, uh, forbids, but doing what he commands. 
never do anything wrong, but also never do anything right. God does call us to, to lives of holiness and, and abstaining from, from uh, things of this world, but if all you are focused on is the things that I can avoid in this life, and the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do this, to, to give over here, to, to buy the pastor's meal at El Toro, whatever it may be, just planting seeds here, no, uh, whatever God is instructing you towards, uh, there are two sides to this thing, church. There are things in life that we need to avoid. But what Jesus emphasizes in this passage is not avoidance, it's obedience. And producing fruit won't be a product of all the things that you've avoided. It'll be a product of your obedience. And sometimes, church, uh, when God when the Holy Spirit is leading you, you have to take steps of faith. You just have to. Can you stand with me? I always think of, of Moses, and I've shared this many times, and I'll share it many more because it's just so good. When, when, when God is speaking to Moses, and Moses does not want to go stand before Pharaoh, and God says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Now his ears probably perk up in that moment because how many of you know when you feel like God is calling you to do something, it would be great to have a sign, right? It would be great if he just said, I'm going to spell it out for you. I'll, I'll give you a sign. And this is what he says to Moses. I'll give you a sign. When you worship me on that mountain, you'll know I was with you. In other words, when you get to the other side, you'll know that I got you there. Now in that moment, that does Moses no good. And that's what's going to happen for some of you. God uh, is going to lay something on your heart and ask you to step out in obedience and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna want to sign. But the only sign that you're going to get is on the other side of your obedience. When you see later, oh, that's why God was calling me to do that. stand before you this morning and I thank you so much that you are present with us in this place and my prayer is as Renee leads us in song that each and every person in this place is present with you in our hearts and in our spirits that we would be present with you as Renee leads us, let that be the focus of your heart, to be present with God. Jesus, as we leave this place, I pray that, that none of us feels like we're leaving God's presence and that we'll come back to it next week.
Dave Saturday at 7. So if you want to be a part of that, that's here at the church Saturday at 7. I think that's the only announcement. Last week was winter. Today is spring. Next week is summer. Come on. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.